You are listening to the Fly on the Wall podcast with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Conversations about business, politics, government, education, and so much more. Now, here is your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. Welcome back. This is Delano Lewis, and this is Fly on the Wall podcast. Just briefly, Fly on the Wall podcast has conversations with very successful people who've been involved in many, many fields of endeavor. And we've been focusing uh, on other interviews in business and politics, education. And what has sort of evolved is we've been talking about some of the issues of the day. But I can't think of a more perfect guest today, a person who has done unbelievable things in his career, a perfect one to talk about issues of the day. He is our American statesman, retired four-star general of the United States Army. In his military career as national security advisor, commander of U.S. Armed Forces, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the 65th United States Secretary of State. A real trailblazer, a man of many firsts. I'm talking about Colin Powell, a good friend. I want to welcome you to Fly on the Wall podcast. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. It's good to hear your voice again, and uh, I look forward to our conversation. Well, thank you so much. You know, as I was going over your career, I'm just absolutely amazed at all of the firsts that you've done. And what a successful, unbelievable career. And, I, you know, I can start off, you know, as I said, when I think about it, um, why hadn't you expanded that career of becoming a candidate for president of the United States? Because I think with that kind of background of things you've done, and I think that was considered at one time. Am I right? It was uh, sort of considered because <laughs> I was being put under a lot of pressure after I left the Army. Right. Uh, in 1993, I spent the next two years just kind of settling into civilian life and also writing my memoirs. And that was the period during which we were talking about the 1996 convention. And suddenly, my book came out. It did well. People liked it. They remembered me from my days in the military. And this pressure was put upon me to consider running for president. Right. And so I had to think about it, but I'm not a politician. I'm an infantry officer. <laughs> right, right. And so we 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 played with this with the, with the possibility, and I learned a little bit more about what it takes to run, what it means to run, and uh, discussed it with my family, and uh, uh, decided after about six weeks of misery. Right. <laughs> no, because uh, do I have an obligation? Do I yes. have to? Yeah. Do, can I? Am I? Am I uh, fixed in this situation? And after about six weeks uh, of this agonizing period, uh, I woke up one morning, uh, put my feet on the floor, and said, you know you really don't want to do this. Right. <laughs> and that, that was the answer. You had to do what is what? true to you and what you think is right for you and your family. And Alma, my wife, didn't have any interest in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went downstairs and said, uh, Alma, I'm not going to do this. Uh, I'm going to have a press conference tomorrow and shut this down. And she looked at me in that uh, way that wives look at you. Right. And she said, what took you so long? Because <laughs> she, knew, she knew this was not something that was for me, uh, and uh, it was not going to work for me or for the family. And after being my wife for close to 30 years now, I guess, 
uh, and doing everything I asked her to do. Mm -hmm. Two years in Vietnam, a year in Korea, uh, very, very demanding jobs. She she was deserving of 50% of the decision. And so I made an announcement that I, I couldn't do it. Um, and I'm just not a political person. There's no passion there to do it. And without that passion, you really can't do it. And I was asked, you know, was it because of your wife? I said, yeah, 50% of it was because of her and 50% was because of me. It was a 100% decision. Right. Neither one of us thought it was the right thing. But I have to tell you, I'm flattered that almost every day since 1995, I get asked about it. I know you do, and I, I was going to talk about that. Just like you just did, Del. <laughs> <laughs> I know. you were. They were talking, you declared in 1995 in my research that you would be a Republican, and you started to go yeah. out and campaign for Republicans. And in 1996, there was talk that maybe you would run against Bill Clinton. And so that was really heating up. I remember it very, 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 very carefully. I remember that was happening. Oh, I remember that, too, and uh, they may have thought it was heating up down at Clinton campaign headquarters, but it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't heating up in the Powell household. No, and I no, no, not at all. And I and understand. I went, I went back. I've been consistent ever since. I've never changed my mind. It kind of came up briefly again in 2000. I said, no, guys, I know who I am. I know what I'm good at, and I don't know politics well enough, nor do I have any passion for it. And there are better people qualified but frankly, I was neither a hard right Republican or a hard left Democrat. I was right. a soldier who, who looked at everything, and I always decided on what was the best thing. And in politics, you can't always do that. And so I told folks that, um, you know, I am very, very liberal on mm -hmm. social issues, which is uh, very democratic. Uh, but I was also very conservative and concerned about defense and foreign policy on the right side. And so I was one or the other, but I was neither. I was a combination of both. So I have voted for different parties and different presidents uh, my whole life. And we're going to... Yeah, for all that. Yeah, go ahead. No, we're going to get into that very, very carefully about uh, your life. And and I really believe you are a, a centrist in many ways, and mm -hmm. you have you have dealt with both, par both parties. And it brings you back to your early life, which... Uh, I remember reading about your uh, ROTC days at the uh, City College of New York, and you said uh, you finally found something in ROTC that you really liked and something that you were good at. And when you can put those two things together, you really got success. So that's how it began in that military life of yours. Am I right? That's that's correct. I I was I would call myself a mediocre student in the public <laughs> school system. No, that seriously. Right. And I have the transcripts to prove it. <laughs> because when I became a success and was writing my book, I wrote to the Department of Education of the City of New York, and I said, "Do you happen to have any of my old records?" And they had every single one from oh, kindergarten my. through college, Gee. with every C and D I ever got. Oh my goodness. <laughs> And so I was, a, I was kind of a mediocre student, and I even have a note from the guidance counselor in my junior high school when my mother said, you will go try and get into the Bronx High School of Science or Stuyvesant. Uh -huh. And my guidance counselor sat me down, and then the, the, the note he wrote said, young Powell wishes to go to Bronx High School of Science or Stuyvesant, we recommend against it. <laughs> and so I, I, they wouldn't even let me apply. Oh and uh, I've thanked them every day since. 
I, I would have been stretched, and it was beyond my capacity at that time. And I was not a good. I should not have gone to either one. So I went to Mars High School, right. which is where is where you go when they won't let you in anywhere else that's higher. <laughs> and it was just right for me, and it was a wonderful education. Then I got into CCNY with a less than uh, acceptable uh, average. I don't know why they let me in, but they did. The first six months, as my mother had instructed me, I tried engineering. That isn't working. Right. So I entered geology because I couldn't drop out. Those West Indians would have killed me if I dropped out. <laughs> and so I found ROTC that summer. And I said, oh, my God, uh, look at those guys drilling. Look at the discipline, the demands. Wow. I think this is me. It's a new family. I'll never leave my family in the Bronx. But now I've got to move on. Uh, I'm going to be 18 in a few months, and I've got to move on. And uh, ROTC gave me, as I often say, a new family. Wow. And that's a family that's been with me for 60-something years now. My goodness. Uh, I'm still in touch with all of those kids, or now old men, and, and uh, we we have reunions, we have all kinds of things. Uh, but it set me loose. And then uh, I had this family, and I also had my independence and the Army taught me uh, how to behave. It was still a segregated nation, as you know. Sure. But the Army was no longer segregated. Mm -hmm. And so I was in this institution called the Army where they instructed me in the following manner. They said, Powell, now I'm a lieutenant. I've graduated from CCNY, a regular Army lieutenant. Powell, here at Fort Benning, I want to tell you, you're going to learn about the infantry and be an infantryman. But let me make sure you understand, Lieutenant Powell, we don't give a damn about your color, where you came from, whether you're an immigrant kid or not. You didn't go to West Point. You didn't go to Citadel. You went to a public school. We don't care about any of that. We don't care that you were poor. The only thing we care about is performance. If you perform and if you show potential, you will move up. If you don't, you won't. Is there anything about this statement you do not understand? <laughs> Sir, uh-uh. <laughs> Pretty clear. Yeah, it was clear, and I understood that. And I could I could handle the segregation in the town of Columbus uh, when they wouldn't. They threw me out of a, a uh, hamburger joint once after I just came back from Vietnam and had been injured, and uh, I asked for a hamburger as I was racing back to the base from Birmingham where I left my wife and my baby uh, son, and just pulled in. All I wanted was a hamburger. I didn't go inside. I wasn't a right. fool. They tried to do it at the window. And the nice young woman there, white lady from New Jersey, said, I don't understand any of this, but I can't serve you. Wow. And then she then she tried to help me. She said, are you a uh, African African student from Africa who's going to the school? And I said, no, ma'am. Um, are you Puerto Rican? <laughs> no, ma'am. <laughs> she said, oh, are you? I said, yes, ma'am. Oh, and she you. said, I can't serve you. I I'll said, be done. Okay. But six months later, roughly... On July 3rd or 4th, I can't quite remember, of 64, right after Johnson had signed the Accommodations Act of 1964, so I, went back to that, mm -hmm. I went back to that same window and asked for my hamburger. And said, Here you are, sir. <laughs> that made the difference. Hamburger. That made the difference. Well, the, big, the big thing about that, though, and you'll remember this, while we were doing something for black people with that Accommodations Act and the Civil Rights Act of 65, we were doing a lot for white people. Yes. Mm -hmm. It benefited both whites and blacks because no longer had to live this lie. And we're still struggling with it, but it was it was a masterful action on the part of President Johnson. Yeah, well, you're absolutely correct. Uh, for our listeners, uh, we're talking to 
uh, Secretary Colin Powell, who has his fantastic career uh, fly on the wall podcast. And just let's go back so we can tell our listeners, uh, Colin Powell was born uh, in New York City, but raised in South Bronx. Uh, parents uh, immigrated from Jamaica. So he has a very strong uh, background from the Caribbean, and uh, he understands immigration. So I wanted to put that in focus. And he found his life's calling in the military. So anything you want to add about uh, being a child of immigrants uh, and what's going on today in our society? Well, let me expand it a little and describe the South Bronx block that I lived on, Kelly Street. Please. It, it was in uh, the 41st Precinct area. We called it Fort Apache. It was so rough in those days. Wow. But the block I lived on, the neighborhood I lived in, was so diverse, so full of everybody in the world you can think of. They had Jamaicans like me. They had other Caribbean people. They had the blacks coming up from the south. They had Eastern Europeans, Puerto Ricans. You name it, we had it, Kelly Street. And what it did for me and all the other kids was it said, we're all the same. Mm -hmm. We're all the same. All of our parents worked down in the garment district. And so everybody is equal. Every human being is the same as equal. And I lived with that uh, to this day. And so, as you might expect, I'm a great believer in immigration. My yes. father came on a banana boat. My mother came on a banana boat. I see immigrants hard at work. I deal with immigrants in my business activities out in Silicon Valley. We, this country, wouldn't survive without immigrants. It is an immigrant country. Absolutely and we should right. Change the, we should change the system. When I went to work for President Bush 43 as his Secretary of State, our first trip was going to be to Mexico, and the reason we want to go down there and talk to the new Mexican president, Vincente Fox, was to try to put in place a new immigration system in the United States so that immigrants could come here, not sneak through the wire, come here uh, properly and uh, allowed to work, uh, and then over time integrate themselves into the society uh, with green cards and then ultimately uh, um, citizenship. And so we knew what we had to do. We had to make it easier to go back and forth from mm -hmm. the United States to Mexico and back. And we had to make sure that all of those immigrants who were here illegally or unauthorized, we needed to bring them out of that darkness. Exactly. And put them on a path. We didn't do that. We couldn't get it done. But it, we we're off to a great start. And then 9-11 uh, hit. And the country had to protect itself. And one of the ways we thought we were doing that was shutting off all immigration or not even moving forward on immigration. And I think that was a, a terrible outcome, but we had no choice. The Congress wouldn't buy anything like that, nor would the American people. Mm -hmm. So we're slowly getting back on track. And I see, you know, when people say, well, well, why do you think immigrants are so important? I said, you know, I travel a lot. When I go in an airport, sometimes coming back from the West Coast, I, I get to the airport at 6 o'clock for an 11 o'clock flight, and I just sit there. <laughs> you sound like I, I do the same thing. Go ahead. I just, I just sit there. I don't go to the first-class lounge because I get bugged there. <laughs> I just sit at a gate that is not too crowded, and I watch. And I watch, and most of that airport is being run by immigrants. Mm -hmm. I look at the people who are cleaning the floors. They're immigrants. Cleaning the bathrooms, those are immigrants. At the concession counters, they're immigrants. Some of them own the concessions. That's they're right. at the counters, they're at the gate, they're checking you in, they're checking you out. And when I get off the plane and, and here in Washington and I go out the door of the plane and heading up the ramp, 
there are at least five or six wheelchairs being pushed by immigrants. You know, and when you, everywhere. And when you get in the taxi, we know they're immigrants. We know they're immigrants. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if it's Uber, you can be sure of it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But what have we done? We give opportunities to people. We're not stealing jobs from anybody. That's right. We're giving opportunities. The, the guys who come here and cut my lawn, the guys who fix things around the house, the guys in my neighborhood and here in McLean, Virginia, a relatively upscale neighborhood, but around the corner in all of the shops that I love to go, um, I, I respect them all. Right. I always talk to my audiences and say, I could give you stories all day long about what immigration has done for us. I don't have the time for it. But I'm mm -hmm. telling you, this country rests on immigration, and we ought to have a change in our immigration policies to make it more humane and to greet people, not to, not to turn them away. We don't have to take everybody. We can, have, we can have limits. But for God's sakes, we need a policy that recognizes the dignity of people trying to get in this country. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And your passion is obvious about immigration. And I really appreciate it, and I know our listeners do. And also, that reminds me of another passion that you have that I remember reading about you because you were courageous. You've been a courageous on many fronts, but one was on affirmative action. You never backed down for belief that affirmative action made sense for this country, that people needed to have a system where they could at least come to the gate uh, and run the race fairly because we know that the system has not been fair to that point. Would you share with our listeners your, your views about that? has not only not been fair to that point, the system has been unfair for the last 200 years. Absolutely right. And so when, when somebody says, well, we have affirmative action at the top 10 of the Ivy League or you know all the fancy schools, oh, well, isn't that wonderful? And if there's money around, those kids who are not minorities will get in as a result of the affirmative action they're getting from the money that the parents are giving to the school, and as we have read recently, yes. some of them are bribing people to get the kids into the school. Yeah, we've heard that. That. Is, a, that is an affirmative action kind. <laughs> and then we complain that, that uh, some Asians are trying to get in more than they're supposed to get in, or that we have to be, uh, you know, go after blacks. You know, even even when the... Uh, I, I, it makes me sick, because mm -hmm. uh, I think it is worthy. And uh, my school, uh, City College of New York, which I am now deeply involved in. I have a school within the college named after me, the Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership. That's fantastic. And yeah, and I've always, I've always said this is a public university, and the measure of what it's doing is, is it serving the whole public? Right. And if you got the school that is not allowing people to come in who might otherwise not have gotten there, like me, <laughs> no, and me, <laughs> and you got it. <laughs> But if it's a public school, it has to serve the whole public, and the whole public is not. If the whole public is not there, there's something wrong. Exactly right. City College, City College of New York charged me nothing for my education, four and a half years, and I didn't pay a nickel. Not my parents, nor did my parents, because the people of New York, the city, and the state recognized that they had nothing more important to do than to educate the next generation, and that's why the schools then were free. City College now is not totally free. It's got a tuition of about $6,000. That's not bad. Mm -hmm. And if those kids can't handle $6,000, we'll give them scholarships. And exactly. to close, just to close this thought, um, when I first started making some money, which I was, I was not rich coming out of the uh, Army, but when I first got some money, one of the first things I did with it 
is I created a scholarship at the City College of New York, and I named it after my immigrant parents. Fantastic. Martin Luther Powell, America's Promise Scholarship. That also goes to another theme of mine that I think you're familiar with, Adele, and that is kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had a great career. Uh, I can't repeat it. I can't change, change anything I did in the past, good or bad. And uh, I can only talk about the present, not in the present. But what I can still do is influence the future. So I spent a lot of time in education, created the America's Promise Alliance for Kids. I have 12 schools, elementary and middle schools, named after me around the country. And my school in the City College of New York. And you'll never guess which state in the Union has more Colin Powell schools than any other. New York? Texas. Texas. (laughs) I would never have guessed. The closest one to New York City is in Union City, New Jersey, just across the river. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. That is great. Well, you know, the passion that you have for education, for affirmative action, and for immigration comes through. But I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about your other passion of being a soldier for 35-plus years. And that impact, um, you served two tours in Vietnam. Uh, You were a captain from 62 to 63, a major in 1968. You were a White House fellow uh, under President Nixon. You were in a National War College. Uh, You've done some amazing things in your military career and your government career, but I know Vietnam had a big impact on you. And I thought, uh, you know, could you share that with with our listeners? Well, I went went to Vietnam at at, uh, the order of President Kennedy in 1962, right after I was married, frankly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was gone for a year. And I tromped up and down the forests and jungles of, of Vietnam to include foolishly falling into a trap one day and putting a a bamboo poison spike through my foot. But all of that worked out, and uh, after that year, I looked at what we'd accomplished, and it frankly wasn't much in my judgment, and I wrote about that in my my first book. And I said, you know, um, we're not going to win this war. But we went back, I went back in 68 and 69, and we were applying massive force to the problem. But I could tell that they, their birth rate was higher than we could create a death rate for them. Mm. So we were not going to win, and they were not really communists. As much. They are communists, but not as much as they were nationalists. They mm. wanted, the North Vietnamese wanted their country and prepared to fight and die for it. We were not prepared to make that kind of investment, and it would not have been a good investment. It was a, it was a war against nationalism, not just communism. Right. And, well, here we are, forty years later, uh, and uh, we we do we have trading relations with North Korea. Uh, excuse me, wrong country. That's not a good one. Mm-hmm. North Vietnam or Vietnam, as we now call it, of course. Um, and so, by the time I went back the second time, it didn't look like it was a success, going to be a success. And Nixon had come in by then, and he knew he had to get out. And it took another several years and many thousands of Americans right. before the war came to an end in 1975. And the reason I slipped, I had a mental slip there with uh, Korea. Korea, because I served there too. I know you Not did. Not in North Korea, but in South Korea. <laughs> and um, um, I have views about that. The North Koreans are very, very clever negotiators. They are determined to keep this uh, nuclear program they have. But I remind people, they may have a program. It really can't hurt us yet, can't reach us yet. But even if it could, why would the North Koreans... Think about firing a nuclear weapon at us when they would know, because I've said so when I was chairman repeatedly before Congress, 
we would destroy North Korea the next day. Yes. They are too smart to commit assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. So we ought to keep negotiating with them, uh, stop all the, the fiery war talk, uh, and uh, they can't get any better until they get rid of that program. And I don't know if they're going to get rid of that program. Uh, so let's just keep talking and not think we're on the verge of war with the North Koreans. I think that's very, very good advice because it appears like they're going back to uh, developing their nuclear power. But I think talking has got to be a part of it. And I think that that's something that you brought to uh, our government. You you were a strong believer in military force uh, where appropriate, but you were also one who was very interested in diplomacy. And we met uh, when you were Secretary of State. Uh, you came to South Africa, and I was the ambassador there. And I had a yes. chance to uh, show you around South Africa, and we talked together about uh, our policies going forward, particularly for Africa. But I don't. Yes. I know that you have that balance between. They call it the Powell Doctrine, where you say that you maximize force, but you limit casualties, but you also have room there for diplomacy. Would you talk about your doctrine? Yeah, in, in simple terms, and it's not a doctrine in the sense that uh, it's in all the Army manuals. It was created by a reporter. Mm. <laughs> he came to see me one day and uh, uh, when I was chairman, right. and he said, I want, to write about, I want to write about the Powell Doctrine. I said, hey, cool, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> He said, "Well, what you you are always saying that you want to you want to negotiate and have diplomacy and find a peaceful way to solve a problem. But at the end of the day, if it's necessary and you have to go to military action, your doctrine says go to it in strength and get it over with as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. That will minimize casualties. Right. And that's what I did. Panama uh, in uh, Desert Storm." And I've always felt strongly about it, but it isn't that original. It's basic principles of war. Mm-hmm. The principle of the objective. Why are you doing this? Are you, can't you solve it diplomatically? And then the second principle of war is the principle of mass. If you've got to go to war, use mass, which is what we did in Panama and in uh, Desert Storm, and I might add, successfully. Well, listen, you've been very generous with your time. We're talking to Colin Powell former Secretary of State, an illustrious uh, military uh, army uh, general. Uh, I I have just a couple of things before I let you go. Uh, Back to the way we started this in terms of politics. Um, I noticed you endorsed um, uh, Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. You endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, what's next, uh, in 2020? I mean, uh, for the Republicans and for you, how do you, how do you see it? I am a private citizen. I will watch. I haven't the, I haven't the slightest idea what we're going to see in uh, uh, 2020. Uh, but I think it's important for all of us to sort of get past the headlines on cable news all the time. Right. And for us to start thinking through issues. Yes. And we have important things we ought to be working on. The infrastructure, education, health care. Uh, go on and on. We also have to keep our alliances strengthened and not torn apart. So I will be watching it carefully. I will study carefully. And then when the time comes, I will tell my wife who I may vote for, and I'll go to the voting booth, and she will never tell me who she's going to vote for. <laughs> I understand that. I have the same agreement with my wife. So I really appreciate it. The last thing well, I like, liked... like I'm sure it's the same. Our two wives are the same. Right. They served. They both served well. Absolutely. And uh, proud of all of them, and I wouldn't be where I was I am without her. I have the same feeling, and I've been married to Gail 58 years, so I have the same feeling. And she's smarter than I am, too, so I, I'm smart How enough to— How many years? Uh, 58. 
Uh, I'm only at 57. But <laughs> <laughs> right. last thing, what, what would you say to, to our listeners, particularly those who are thinking about careers, uh, politics, success, and happiness in life? What would you say to them? Happiness is first and foremost uh, having people in your life who make you happy. Kids, family, mm-hmm. relatives, spouses, you name it. Um, I grew up in a happy family. Uh, not just my parents, but all those Jamaican relatives of mine. And uh, get your education. It was unthinkable in my family for anybody, to, any kid to come home and say, I've had it, I'm dropping out. Right. Because what you will hear is, oh, no, man. Uh-uh, no. We're going to drop you out. <laughs> We're going to go get me another kid. <laughs> and so, you know, so that was it. Uh, they, they kept moving me along. I uh, knew that I was not the brightest uh, bear in the woods, but they kept moving <laughs> me along until I found something that I loved doing and did. That's the big one. Find something that you love doing and you do well. And when you find that combination, that's what you ought to be doing. Even if you're a bus driver, which I might have been if I had found the Army, I would have been a good bus driver. <laughs> right. But you've been um, the best bus driver. You've been the best Nothing one. wrong with it. That's yeah. right. But what I say is, you know, just make sure that you believe in what you're doing and that you are making a living for your family. That's essential. But two, you're satisfied in your work. You think you're serving somebody and doing it well. Well, thank you so much. I certainly share those thoughts. I grew up in segregated times in the state of Kansas and had mm-hmm. strong parents who believed in education. And that is the foundation for whatever you're going to achieve. And work hard at what you do. And you worked very hard in your life. And you succeeded and you found it in military and you served, which is an important piece of all of this. You yep. serve not only our country, but you serve and you continue to serve our community. So very proud to know you, very proud to be your friend. And you've been a fantastic guest on Fly on the Wall. Thank you very much, Del. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. We've been listening to Fly on the Wall podcast interview with Colin Powell. Uh, He had been Joint Chiefs of Staff. He had been a National Security Advisor. He'd been uh, 35 years in the military in Vietnam. Uh, He was an incredible, incredible first uh, on so many levels. Uh, He now runs America's Promise, which is a not-for-profit group dealing with education. Uh, He gave us some insights about what it takes to be happy, what it takes to succeed. An incredible interview with Colin Powell the 65th, and I must say the first African-American Secretary of State of our nation. So again, continue to listen to Fly on the Wall podcast. Uh, Until next time, Godspeed. You have been listening to the Fly on the Wall podcast. For more information about this episode and previous episodes, plus great merchandise and more, please visit our website at flyonthewallpodcast.com today.